Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We don't even know that we're powerful. It just means that somehow, somewhere, someone is making use of who we are. And that is a bridge. I am bridging who you are today to who you can be tomorrow. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show today. Hard to believe, but this is the first episode of season 13 of Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, and I am so glad you're here. Thank you for helping make this show the success it is, sharing it with the leaders and managers in your life who are wanting those practical, human-centered leadership techniques. And uh, today's episode, I'm excited to introduce you to our guest. Her name is Rani uh, Peranik. She is the co-owner, executive vice president, and global CFO of Houston-based Worldwide Oil Field Machine, which is a privately held family-owned oil and gas equipment manufacturing firm with more than 4,000 employees across 13 global locations. Uh, Ronnie's been named one of the top 25 most influential women in energy 2022 by oil and gas investor and heart energy. And she's passionate about mentoring the next generation of leaders. And you're going to get that from her book. And I'm confident you're going to get that from her conversation today. Uh, Her new book is called Seven Letters to My Daughters, Light Lessons of Love, Leadership and Legacy, which uh, that subtitle, you know, just resonates so much with everything we're about on this show. And in the book, Ronnie serves as a companion, mentor, and even daughter for readers seeking to grow through adversity, define who they are, what they want, and become the best version of themselves. All things we're committed to here on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Ronnie, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David, for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, from, uh, I was going to say sunny Houston, but uh, I'm seeing you on camera here as we're talking, and uh, it doesn't seem so sunny in the background. The spring is on its way. So we have yellow dust, which we call pollen and maybe a few showers. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, all right. Very good. I was in I was in Scottsdale last week and it rained most of the time. It was gorgeous. <laughs> uh, I love it. All right. So, Ronnie, as we get uh, started, and we're going to learn more about you in this book. You are you just you unveil so much of yourself and share it with the reader. But I'd like to ask you uh, as we start our conversation, if you could take us back in your life to whatever your earliest memory of yourself as a leader might be. And maybe it's one of the instances you relate in the book, or maybe it's something else. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, You know, that's a great question. And uh, being a leader, I think we put a lot of um, a lot of pressure on, you know, what would you define leadership? What is it? Are you follow? Do you listen? You know, what is it? But honestly, I see leadership in every stage and phase of our lives. You know, ever since we were children, uh, we are leading ourselves to take the first steps, to voice our first word. We lead our own thoughts. That's kind of where leadership starts. And I think it's really the approach and the attitude that we take where leadership starts to impact other people. And then we start to define it more formally of, oh, you seem to be a leader. But like I said, I think the primary um, uh, definition, if it is, starts from who we are and how we lead our thoughts. So probably the first uh, instance for me uh, was when I was in, was uh, in the ninth grade. I was 14 years old and I had no, simply no idea what leadership meant, nothing at all. And um, as, as you probably know, I was raised in the United States for my, for the first 18 years of my life, but very traditional Indian values. And the reason why I went to India in the ninth grade is because I was very, stubborn and adamant and asked my mom to send me to India for at least a year to learn about the culture because you know we were my mom was teaching us certain things here in Houston Texas of all the places and I was like but why I need to experience it so I was there in India for one year in the ninth grade and uh, the school that I chose was a service-oriented school so we had this uh, field trip to go into a village and uh, basically help 
to minimize and take away um, abuse that is coming out of alcohol abuse and um, domestic violence and all of those things. Uh, and again, domestic violence that is really spurred because of alcohol abuse. So there was like this little moonshine sort of little factory, not even a factory you could call it, but just a little sort of operation uh, which we knew was not benefiting the village. So the school, along with some, you know, local politicians had taken it upon themselves to uh, really uh, make a difference in that village. So we as school students were part of it. Now in a village in India, you can imagine, um, India does not always go by caste systems, but it's still kind of an unspoken part of the fabric. So during that time also, um, when we were supposed to sort of do this march, I knew it was important that the villagers joined us. So I kind of talked to one of the women and she was like, oh, there's no way I can join you. You'll know, you have no idea what's going to happen if, you know, my husband finds out that I'm part of this march. And I said, no, 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 just, just hold my hand. Just, just hold my hand. I'm going to be with you. Now, holding her hand apparently was a big deal because she was not someone that apparently someone from my quote unquote class would actually do. So that's something that started to shift people's mindset of how they started viewing me. Because for, for me, she was a person, she is a human being first. So I held her hand and, you know, we kind of did what we did. Lots of victory and the story is definitely in the book. Um, a, a lot of emotions uh, carried through in that. And uh, in that, during that same time period, we were also asked to set up our tents in our, in our sort of, you know, lodging system, if you will. And we're in the middle of a village in India. There's nothing, there's no water except for a water well and a couple of buckets. So even at that time, you know, our instructor was like, all right, girls, that's the well, those are the buckets, fill the water, bring it back to the tank and, you know, you'll have water to bathe and clean. Awesome, we had drinking water that was supplied um, with us. So all these girls are like, we're about 40 of us and 10 buckets going, now how in the world do we make this thing efficient, right? So then, Again, going back to leadership, it's about thinking out of the box. So for me, I'm like, there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be a shortcut for all of this. So long story short, instead of each girl kind of, you know, literally lugging a bucket of water from one well 50 yards down to another sort of storage tank, instead of that, we eventually made like a line of 40 girls and just sort of handed over the bucket, maybe five feet, two feet uh, worth of weight and uh, kind of made this human chain. But that itself had so much resistance. You know, I had girls come up to me and say, well, no, you're from America. We don't do it this way. I'm like, what does that have to do with me from the United States? I'm trying to find a different solution so that we don't get tired and we can do this thing quickly. Mm. So just the fact that there was resistance and as a leader, we have to find ways to communicate. So going back again, victory, we accomplished, you know, this her Herculean task, at least at that age, which could have taken us two hours, like in 45 minutes, right? And we had time to sing and dance and do whatever girls do at that age. So um, after those two incidences, when we met, went back into the city, um, the principal announced, oh, we've seen a leader, um, an upcoming leader, and we'd like to recognize her. And I'm looking around the room going, who are they talking about? And they mentioned my name. And that was the first ever definition of leadership that came to my to my knowledge, and I started to try try to trying to define it too. And everyone was like, "Well, leadership is when you lead." Uh, okay, <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks. But then over the years, and you'll see it even in the book, I mentioned this: leadership is so much more about leading. You know, there's a famous quote that I, I always talk about by um, well, it's a Winnie the Pooh quote. By the way, I really do believe. Pooh Bear is a Zen master in his own right. So uh, the quote says, you know, um, don't follow me because I may not lead. And sorry, don't, don't walk behind me because I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me because I, I may not follow, but walk beside me so that we can journey together. And for me, really, that kind of encompasses everything that leadership is. Um, it's really about communicating. It's about being empathetic. It's, it's just so much more. And honestly, I don't think I know the entire definition of the leadership yet, but those are some of the core principles. And for our listeners, Ronnie, if you're listening, you've got such a good 
taste and sense of what uh, I think Ronnie's all about and what definitely <laughs> what the uh, seven letters to my daughter's light lessons of love, leadership and legacy is all about uh, throughout the book. Uh, and I just want to say, uh, Ronnie, reading this book, it is compelling. It's vulnerable. Uh, for listeners who, as you listen and hear more, you might be thinking about getting it. It really takes you into her experiences with the, the writing is fantastic. There's immediacy and empathy, and it's very moving. And there are twist turns and, in Ronnie's <laughs> language, and I will vouch for this, James Bond-like adventures that you may not <laughs> expect as you're, <laughs> as you're getting into it. Uh, just fantastic. So, But that aspect of leadership that you're talking about there is something that you explore in the book there are so many different facets of leadership and and just you've just given us two from holding someone's hand and really reaching out to the humanity in them and walking literally walking alongside in your your best winnie the pooh zen master imitation um to the the facilitative work of bringing people together to create a better future than they would have had individually just doing what they'd done uh, with all of the <laughs> communication challenges and the rejection and the hurdles to overcome objections that come with it. And that's just in two quick examples. I am curious, what led you to write this book the way you did? You, you walk us through seven stages of your life, leadership lessons in the form of uh, letters to your daughters. Why did you write this book? Uh why did I write it? Um, I was around 49 years old. Again, you know, I'm going to not just to date myself, but you'll see the relevance in it. And me and my two daughters were sort of having breakfast. And, you know, my daughters have really lived my life with me. They really have. And we were just sort of reminiscing. And both of my girls said, you know, Ma, you, we, we have come a long way. And I said, you know what? We really have, my dears. And then all of a sudden they were like, Ma, but you should write a book. And I just like in passing sort of said, yeah, I guess I should. So all of a sudden they knew this was about to happen. And in my mind, that was a spark. If anything, that yes, it's true that we all live lives, but if there's something that we can gift to our children, and if I could do it in the form of these letters or in a book, then that was my motivation to do it. Now the letters part is because I love handwritten letters. I've always loved them. I get the emojis and the memes of today, but there's just something so, so organic and so natural and so connective between, you know, the ink, the paper, the pen, the movements of my fingers and the, the, the brain sort of processing. For me, it's very emotional and it takes time to do that. And I wanted this gift to be something where I didn't just text them something and say, hey, learn this. I wanted to put my time, my effort, my emotion and really my thought process, my heart into it. So seven letters came, the letters concept came from that when my grandmother used to send me letters from India. My God, that was like my, the highlight of my day. So letters for me is a big deal. And the second part is, you know, I've always read about this popular science where our cells are regenerated every seven years. And it's true. When I looked back in my life, I could literally divide my life into seven year phases where every seven years, I was taught by the world, right? Just life was taught very distinct lessons, very distinct lessons. And I didn't know this when I said, I'm going to write a book. This is when I started reflecting, going how best to make this gift meaningful. And this is what made sense to me. And it just kind of worked for me. So the first seven years of my life, I played a very specific role. I thought I was a daughter, but I was a girl because most of my lessons that I had to learn or actually pass those tests were from me being a girl, coming from, in, from a complete Indian cultural context, right? And the second phases, phase of my um, letters came from me being a sister. When my siblings were born, all of a sudden I was not a single child. So every seven, uh, seven years has a distinct rule, which was really based on my gender. And now every person is gonna have a different sort of um, anchor into what their seven years look like. For me, it was my spiritual path and just me being a girl in a very you know different culture so that really led my roles to be distinct and uh, like I said every seven years has one letter and therefore seven letters to my daughters and by the way yes this book was motivated and inspired because of my two daughters but at the end of the day I say joy is joy pain is pain 
the way we use our thought and our mind and our brains, our heart to overcome challenges, to face fear, it's all human. Yes. It's all human. It has nothing to do with me being a woman or a girl or you being a man or a boy, nothing. So really and truly, this book is not just a gift for daughters. It's really meant for people, sons and daughters of the world. Really, it is. And I will vouch for that and encourage everyone to read it. Yes, the the that was your through line and your thread. Uh, but the human experience and the leadership principles. That, and one of the things I love about this book, Ronnie, it defies description. Is it an autobiography? Yes. Is it a leadership guide? Absolutely. Is it a, oh, I don't even know what you would call it, but is it uh, an empathetic connection and bridge to see the world through another set of eyes in a very meaningful way? It is that too. There's so many different uh, wonderful aspects about this. So definitely uh, listeners encourage you to uh, take a look at Seven Letters to My Daughter, Light Lessons of Love, Leadership and Legacy. We're talking with Ronnie. Bronick, Executive Vice President, Global CFO of a global oil and gas equipment manufacturing firm. And as we uh, talk about some of these stages of life and some of the lessons and leadership applications, um, you know, at the end of each phase that you described, those each of those seven year phases, um, you, you tie up some meaning, you draw out some of those things that life taught you in a, in a letter that then also transitions into leadership. Uh, and one of those, from one of the earlier stages was about ownership and responsibility. And, and this is an important principle that I think uh, I have seen leaders struggle with is that you mentioned in a business, I'm quoting now, in a business, each person must be given authority to complement their level of responsibility. Yeah. And boy, I have, I have experienced the opposite of that so many times and I've made it a mantra of mine, don't give responsibility without authority. And yet people really struggle with that. So I'm curious in your role now going into your, your leadership roles, um, do you see leaders and managers struggle to do this? And, and from a leadership perspective, an executive leadership perspective, how do you ensure that your leaders are giving authority to complement their people's level of responsibility? So love the question. And that is such a big one in all industries across the globe, right? And uh, if, if anyone is curious where that lesson comes from, it's from me being a sister, literally. And, and I'm sure people will, will relate to this. So I'm the first child, right? And uh, then I've got two siblings that are born much later in my life. I'm like six and then eight. So I feel like there's this responsibility and no one's given it to me, okay? I take it on pawn on myself going, okay, well, I'm the leader of the pack now. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, you know, team, let's do this. and yes, through my siblings. And I'm taking all this responsibility because I want to, I feel like this is my way of showing love and affection and whatever, you know, sisters would do. But what I don't realize at that time and phase of my life is I don't have the authority because my parents, mom or dad could come in at any point, change everything that I was building or saying, or, you know, talking about. And all of a sudden I was left with nothing nothing. So that was for me, a huge lesson for me. That's literally middle management. You know, it's like, well, you've been given the responsibility, not quite the authority. You're expected to perform, meet targets and goals, but you may not have all the authority to make the decisions that are actually required for those results and targets. So where I am today is that lesson is huge for me. So when, as people do climb sort of the career ladder and the responsibilities are, uh, I would say um, are taken more. Uh, uh, there, there are more responsibilities that are not just given, but taken also as you climb the ladder. I'm very aware of making sure that they have also been given the authority and the collaboration and the tools that are required for success. Because even when you do have the authority, what's important is your team understands what that authority looks like so that you're not over, overridden or you're not um, you know, questioned you can be challenged. You can be challenged. I think every authority should be challenged for sure. That's where checks and balances come into play. But at the end, when if it's a choice of making an executive decision, then you do have a certain level of authority and that you can exercise them. So that's, that's just critical in any business. And I will tell you, even as a global business, that's something that we're very, I am very, um, uh, very, very careful about making sure that when people do move from manager 
you know, like a manager level to a VP level, VP level to even a higher, uh, even a director level, that certain norms are, are, are actually established along with that. Yeah. I'm curious as you're describing that, and I know we have listeners who will empathize with, with or have been in the situation, and maybe they're right now experiencing that sense of, yeah, I've got all this responsibility and I just don't feel any authority or very little. Is there a way you recommend opening, they might open that conversation with their manager. They might, it, have you found a particular approach that works or, and I'm, we haven't prepared for this conversation at all. So I'm throwing this <laughs> to you in your leadership role. So curious uh, if you have any advice for listeners as they're experiencing those kinds of challenges. This is great because I experienced this in my professional life. And it's also tricky for people that have family businesses when your boss is your own father. Mm -hmm. Okay, So you're working in the business for almost 10 years and you know, you know the impact you've had, you see the leadership potential that people are valuing you for. But then your boss, who again, like I said, it's, it's a very tricky situation, um, kind of um, takes it for granted to, to, to a degree, like, well, yeah, she's my daughter, she, she's, of course she's got it, you know, well, she, she should have it. Um, but then when it comes to giving the authority, there's not much authority given. There's no title given. I didn't have a title for like two years in between because it was just like, eh, your last name should do it. Not quite. <laughs> so the way I approached this one is, first of all, really sit back and analyze. Have you deserved that authority? Have you really put in your best? Now, if you feel like there are areas where, you know, you you cannot walk with a sense of entitlement that just because you worked in the company for five years or 10 years that you were automatically going to have an authority. And even for people in a family business, just because I happen to be the daughter of the owner does not give me the entitlement to say, well, I need the authority now. I'm your child. No, it doesn't work that way. So professionally, I think we all need to take a step back and say, have I really put in my best? Have I learned everything that I possibly could learn to have that level of authority? Because remember one thing, when we talk about taking authority, we are taking on risk. Do we have the appetite to take on that risk? And do we have, do we have the courage and the boldness and the calm resolve? And I'll say it again, calm resolve to face any challenge that comes in. Because when we take the authority, that means not, our, not only are we taking the wins, we are taking the losses. Are you really ready to take that authority? Authority is not just one way. It's not just a one-sided coin. It's both. So for me, when I had this conversation with my dad, who was also my boss, I had it in a very professional way, not in an emotional way, which is, oh, daddy dearest, don't you see me? No, it really wasn't that. And it definitely did not come from a place of, you know, well, I'm your daughter. I'm entitled to it. No, it's like, not at all. That's just not how I'm wired. So when I approached him, I said, you know, um, the people from around the world, uh, they've accepted a few things and they're already looking up to me for X, Y, Z for certain things. They're calling me a, a certain title because it's coming organically. I've not asked for it, but now I am asking for it. I'm also asking for that level of authority, which means that level of trust, that level of trust. If you can, if you also can give that to me, if you're comfortable with that. And I realize it's a transition for you to even saying that you trust somebody and actually implementing and executing and showing it an action that you trust. There's a transitionary period, which I think all the juniors coming into authoritative figures need to understand. That means that my dad, my boss, had to start releasing certain power of certain authority that he had in order to transfer it to me. That is huge for family businesses, for public businesses, all over across the board. And I think that as we climb the ladder and we believe that we should have a certain level of authority, we should also have a certain level of grace to know that there will be a transition. It's not going to be a light switch on and off going, well, from today, you've got the authority, so go have at it. No, there will be a little bit of a massaging time, a little bit of a grace period, which we, if we say that we have deserved the authority, that's part of the risk. That's part of the grace. That's part of your test. And then of course you will get there. So the way I approached it was that I said, dad, if you trust me, 
Um, I'm ready for the authority, but you know, take your time. Take your time. I'll take the title, but I'll take the, take your time and let's work on this together. Let's work on this together. And now today I'm the incoming CEO. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't mention that in your uh, bio. <laughs> Thank you. I, a couple of phrases that I'm highlighting there uh, that stand out in that conversation uh, were, you know, the beginning of demonstrating the experiential reality that already exists. And so the demonstration, you've got the supporting evidence. Um, here's what's happening. And then there was a phrase you used, if you're comfortable with this, here's what I would like to ask, or here's what I would recommend. Uh, what a what a nice, emotionally intelligent f- phrase of influence, if you're comfortable with this, allowing the other person to remain the chooser of their actions and what they're going to do, and yet with a very strong evidence-based suggestion that you're going with, and then the let's work on this together uh, for the transition, for the recognition of what's going to happen next. Taking one of those situations that can be potentially very fraught and uh, some really good leadership phrases in there. So some real practical suggestions for everybody listening. Thank you for those. Oh, very welcome. And by the way, this did not happen in one go. Mm-hmm. So there was a point where he was like, oh, I'll think about it. And I said, look, you can think about it. That is not going to change who I am. I'm going to continue doing what I do. I will continue taking the responsibility the way I do. Once you're comfortable with it, again, that word comfort, then I am ready. I didn't force it. Nice. And it worked. You didn't force it, but there is still a that calm resolve that you resolve. identified. You know that assertiveness that says, "I am here. I'm in it. I'm good, uh, and uh, and ready." Ready. It's powerful. All right. Well, let's. You mentioned earlier, uh, Ronnie, as you uh, went to high school, you did that first year of high school. Went to India. I mean, amazing. How many? <laughs> kids that age. I know I did. I, I was adventurous, but not to that extent uh, at all. Uh, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to India, or I'm going to go to a whole nother country for this. And you shared some of those experiences with us. And, and you had so many different experiences there, uh, some that were not so good. Um, your leadership lesson that you talk about coming out of all of that is adaptability, uh, a critical leadership characteristic. And, and you just demonstrated that adaptability, even in how you're doing your conversations with your father and, and about your leadership and so on. And I'll leave it to you to tell us what, when you think of the adaptability that leaders need, what was it in that period of your life? What were some of the key learning key experiences that helped get that and what does adaptability mean for you practically as a leader today wow you know i never thought about adaptability that way um one of the first things that come to my mind in terms of adaptability is we're always changing we're always evolving who i am as a leader or who i was as a leader 20 years ago um, may not be what's required as a leader for me today correct So what I think is most important for the way I think about it is any decision or choice that I make today, let it impact someone else so that they start to build their own sort of paths for success. Now, hear me out. What I'm trying to say here is the way I lead is for a long-term strategy. Okay. I don't, I don't make a decision or I don't lead my own thoughts or people or organization uh, for just today. I don't do that. For me, it's about establishing legacy. And I'm very clear that we all are establishing our own legacies. We really are. Um, every choice that you make, I make, we, as long as we're impacting someone, and I say this in a positive way, then legacies are already being created at that point. So for me, the adaptability is that to know that the decision and choice that I make today may be a little different than what I would make tomorrow, but the intention is the same. Mm. The intention is still constant. The intention is constant longevity, reliability, stability. That is a constant for me. So how I lead will always have that as my constant. Stability is a huge one for me. Reliability, longevity. As long as those three are sort of met, then the leadership decisions that I would make or the places that I would refrain from are based off of that. So I think that's the adaptability piece. Yeah. Mm. 
I haven't heard it worded quite that way. The intention that I have remains the same, but I'm also giving myself grace and freedom that the decision I make today may not be the decision I make tomorrow because I'll be a different person. The world will be a different place. And we have to maintain that flexibility, adaptability, if you will. Well, I think so, because at the end, when we talk about um, the adaptability, it cannot be done in a silo. What am I adapting to? I'm adapting to either teams, a company, a global network. It could be, you know, social, political, um, economic fabrics that are around the world. Um, and it could just be my own let's dreams and wishes, um, obstacles, challenges. The, the point is adaptability has to be in conjunction with something else. And those something else's are continuously changing, continuously changing. So as my intention remains constant, then I feel like, all right, I think I know the decision I'm making is going to go in that direction. <laughs> and Ronnie, I think it's important for listeners to know when you're talking about adaptability and and uh, and then in the later section about uh, your experience as being a wife and the leadership requiring a continuous adjustment of finding the right balance towards achieving a goal, pushing, backing off, redirecting. These principles, these concepts, it's easy sometimes for people to go, oh, yeah, well, she's the, you know, incoming CEO of this global company. Yeah, whatever. It's easy for you have had some significant challenges in your life and you walk us through many of these in the book and some of them quite moving and and the adventure <laughs> the adventure quotient of some of these is wow so when you're talking about adaptability and perseverance and overcoming adversity uh i want our listeners to know like you mean that from a lived experience that many people maybe fortunately are never going to have and that but that you have and i'm if if you wouldn't mind I, I would love for you to be able to tell our listeners about one or maybe let's just start with one of those that was defining for you and some of the lessons that continue to inform your leadership as a result. Sure. Uh, the first one, uh, which is, um, which is one of the, uh, really a challenge for me. And I say that I have seen rock bottom, um, a really, really good two times in my life. And I mean, rock bottom, bottom. Um, after I graduated from high school here in Houston, um, again, I went to India in pursuit of singing. Again, I have an artistic flair for, uh, for me. Um, I was also going to college for business engineering just to make sure that, you know, I was on the path that eventually I could help my dad with. But while I was in India and uh, sort of one thing led to the next, I started teaching some kids that were part of a very poverty stricken area. My mom felt I needed some security. Uh, so I was like, okay, fine, you know, give me security. Uh, so she hired somebody that apparently some family friends knew, but he ended up being um, the imposter, actually. He, um, anyway, so yes, that, that's part of the book. Uh, what happened at that time is I was 18 years old and uh, my mother came to see me after two weeks, because even at that time, this is like the pre-cell phone era and, you know, even just making a phone call, you got to book it and all that stuff. So by the time she came and uh, she knew about this attack that had happened, um, she never talked about it, never spoke about it. All I asked for her is for me to, for her to take me back to Houston. All I wanted to do, to do is I kept begging her, take me home, just take me home. I'm done with singing. I'm done with kids. I don't need to teach. Just take me home. The first words out of her mouth is you need to be married. And I'm like, what? you need to be married okay so within a year i am i have an arranged marriage and i will never forget there just that period in my life you want to talk about adaptability i'm this girl from houston texas who's doing all this stuff teaching kids singing performing doing all these things you know riding her motorbike all over the all over city freedom one attack and all of a sudden my world collapses collapses, changes. We're now from a nuclear family in, in the United States. I need to be married in a joint family, which is very common in India. And take all this responsibility, wear certain things, be a certain way, don't smile, don't laugh. I can continue with college because that's supposed to be a prestigious thing, an educated you know, um, daughter-in-law. It's a great thing. But my world changed. And while I was even walking down the altar, all I wanted was for somebody to come and stop and say, 
you don't have to do this. Mm. We got you. We'll take you home. And at that time, I I don't have a job. I'm not earning anything. Uh, nothing. The adaptability is somehow you learn to surrender. Somehow you learn that whatever's going to come your way is going to be okay because you choose to make it okay. That part of the adaptability piece for me has been, I'll tell you, it's a blessing. And, and I really do. I'm a God girl. I've, I've been blessed with sort of a sunny disposition, no matter what happens. Yeah, I'll give myself a pity party for maybe five minutes. But then I've got to snap out of it going, there's got to be a reason for this. And I'm going to put my best foot forward and let's see what happens. So then all of a sudden, yeah, my life changes and switches. But then I start to find some purpose in that too. I start to find some form of creativity. I finished my high school. I finished my college at that time. Um, I'm pregnant with my younger daughter, with my oldest daughter. And then of course life takes you a certain way. And then um, that was huge. That was huge for me to live in India for the next 16 years of my life. Mm. But I found a way and I was very happy and very grateful and I wouldn't change anything now. But the moments that you have to go through certain things and not be depressed not be suicidal, not feel like the, the world has ended. The world that you knew has ended. You have no financial support except for whatever your husband is going to give you. And you have all this responsibility again and whatever. So that was, I would say, is really was rock bottom for me. My world shifted and changed. The second time that everything changed was when I decided to finally separate from my then husband, uh, the father of my two kids. And I was in India. This was uh, back in 2007. And again, India, you know, they don't, the country does not encourage separation or divorce or anything, but it had come to a point where it was toxic for everybody. And I knew that. And I tried staying away for a year, still wasn't working. And yes, it's part of the, the book. And it does feel like it's come from some, you know, thriller sequence out of Bollywood. But it really was something that I had to live. And I can laugh. I really can. I mean, I mean, my daughters, we read it sometimes and we kind of like, man, how do we go through this? But yeah. at that time, it was real. So at that time, I had to leave India with a one-way ticket. And there's just a lot of abuse and toxicity just all over. And the only place I knew to go is Houston. I did not have an immigration status because being a good wife, I surrendered my green card. I was an Indian citizen at that time. I had no, no, no status in the United States, even though I lived here for the first 18 years of my life. So um, my mother, she saw everything and uh, she's the one who arranged my marriage and she knew that it was time, it was time. She gave me a one-way ticket from India to Houston. She gave me $200 cash in my pocket. I had no immigration status. I could not take my kids with me because I didn't have a work permit. What was I gonna do with two kids? I had no idea zero. And I came to Houston with zero, zero. So when we talk about adaptability, you kind of have to take one day at a time. Sometimes it's one second at a time. It's just that one step at a time. But to know that there's got to be a way forward, there's just got to be a way forward. So again, going back to me being a God girl, I know that there's purpose in every single thing. Things are not personal, even though it seems deep down personal when you're going through it, but there's purpose behind it all. You just have to learn how to keep your head up and somehow know that it's going to make its way. And it does. It eventually does. I, my tagline is there's always a way and I've lived it. And sometimes it's harder to put your faith into action, but if you do, you will see the results. You can't just think about faith. You have to put it in action. There's always a way that, uh, that tagline comes through loud and clear as you read about your life and, and the experiences you've had and the, the ways in which you have led and, and learned through them. And, you know, when I started the book and, and you, in the opening part of the book, you describe what you related to us earlier about that conversation with your daughters and, and them saying, you know, yeah, we've been through a lot. Uh, and so you should write a book. And it comes across in that moment as a like, yeah, we've been through a lot together. Hey, let's write a book. And then you hear that again, knowing what that actually means. And 
you know, it's just so powerful. So that's why I, I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners and, and hope that uh, listeners, you'll pick up the book and, and find out all the elements of what Ronnie is describing here. But the reason that I think that's so important and so powerful is because when you say there's always a way and that living out adaptability, living out listening, living out responsibility, living out those different elements is that you really have lived them and you really have put them into practice. And of course, there is more to the story. Uh, your daughters are with you now. Uh, we don't need to get into all that because I want people to get the book and find out how all these things happen. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and obviously, uh, important work in the business and everything that's happening there. I have a couple more questions for you if we, in the minutes that we have, but I want to pause, uh, and, uh, invite you to tell us where we should either connect with you, get the book, uh, anything at all as we're listening and people are like, I have got to learn more about Ronnie <laughs> Peronic. where should they go? Uh, uh, well, the book, Seven Letters to My Daughters, it's available on Amazon. Um, I also have an audible version of it as well. And uh, if you want to know more about me, the work that I do, or just some of the lessons and whatever, that's RoniPuranik.com. And that's spelled R-A-N-I-P-U-R-A-N-I-K.com. And uh, same name, Ronnie Puranik on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Um TikTok, if it's still around, then definitely on TikTok too. So, um, so there you, you have go. me beat. I have not got to TikTok yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, that does not surprise me that uh, you would you would be on all the socials. I <laughs> well, love try, it. Trying, <laughs> trying. I got to keep up with the young ones. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. With that sunny disposition and uh, and can do, we'll uh, get all those links on uh, on the show notes. So we'll have those there for you as well if you are listening in your car or uh, on the trail right now. All right. So talking with uh, Ronnie Peronic here, the uh, author of Seven Letters to My Daughters, Light Lessons of Love, Leadership and Legacy, Executive Vice President, Global CFO of a global oil gas manufacturing firm, equipment manufacturing firm. Uh, and just fascinating conversation and life experiences and all that uh, that you've been sharing with us. I have from a, uh, this is a selfish question, I think, if you will. It's not directly related to the book, but I know that you care about developing leaders. You have a, a mentor's heart. You talk about it in your description of yourself. It's why you wrote the book in, in some respects. So I am curious as an executive, an incoming CEO, uh, for a large organization, how do you invest in, you know, we're all about leadership development here at Let's Grow Leaders, like that's what we do. So that's the selfishness part of my question is, how do you, as a senior leader, ensure that people are getting the leadership skills that they need so that you can entrust them with the human beings who are some of your most important um, assets, resources, and investments? Well, that's a beautiful question. And again, learning never ends, right? And there's there are multiple ways of ensuring that our leaders are fed, uh, I would say like the right knowledge, even experiences. So there are a number of forms uh, that not all of our leadership team is um, a part of yet, but I would say that there it's kind of like in the pipeline as they sort of grow into different leadership. Um, I, I hate to use the word levels, but sort of, you know, circles, if you will. Um, so there are different forums. There are different, of course, you know, just um, books, uh, plethora of books. But there's also, we do some lunch and learns here um, at WOM. Uh, we haven't done one for a while, but we have done them in the past where we do get not just leaders, but what I would call high, call high potentials, right? That they do have, we can see that they have the makings of a really good leader coming through. And uh, kind of like a book club, we'll talk about different concepts. And it's so important for us, to, again, as leaders to listen and see what these incoming leaders also have in their mind. Uh, just that interaction is great. So uh, that and uh, just some, you know, nature activities. I believe nature is a great teacher. And uh, the more that we are aware of our connection as human beings, to nature um, and our communities that we live in, we're learning. Ah, big believer in, in that uh, aspect of things. I love that. Uh, so much more, so many more questions. I want to investigate that deeper, but we'll have to do that another time. Uh, the, the last question I'd, I'd like to 
ask you is to take you to towards the end of the book. Uh, uh, you again through experiences and and some of your own um, journey with faith and different things that you mentioned earlier. You in the leadership aspect, you say that leadership is a bridge, and uh, and that love is really at the core of what we're doing as leaders. And I just so appreciate that. Uh, I'm curious what that looks like. If you could walk us through what you mean by love when it comes to leadership and leadership being a bridge. I just thought that was a beautiful metaphor and beautiful concept to, to leave us with at the end of today's show. So let me give you a little story. And the story is not in the book because it happened after I wrote the book. Um, I climbed Mount Everest last year in May. Did and you really? I did, yes. Wow. I did. Well, well, base camp, I did not summit, but, you know, because I wanted to live, but uh, <laughs> did, did definitely uh, very, you know, just shy of 19,000 feet. So mm. when I was at 5,000 feet and we were at Lukla over in Nepal and started climbing, David, just imagine the scenery where you're at the edge, literally edge of a ridge and you look up and magnificent taller than you can ever imagine, sharp edges, snow-capped Himalayan mountains in front of you, almost touching the sky as if, you know, there's this infinity above you. And then you look down and it's just a deep valley, like almost a mile down. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's what it feels like, right? Like thousands of miles down. And as you look down the valley, you see this white water, this white water, pure, beautiful, rapid, just cutting through the mountain, making its way, making its own path. And it's, it's just going. When I see this, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh my God, this is so powerful. It's just, you're in awe, you're overwhelmed. It's you want to cry and smile and you're excited, but you're still scared all at the same time. Okay. All at the same time. But this one word power, and this is why I'm telling you, giving you the story, this one word power really hit me hard going, what is power? As people in a company, we are sitting in boardrooms and we see someone come in, we're like, wow, that's a powerful person. Well, what does that mean? What does power mean? We talk about companies all day long. That's a powerful company. Don't mess with it. What does power mean? What does power even mean? So I started to ask every person on this eight day hike to base camp. And every time we stopped, you know, people were just hanging out, talking. We had plenty of time to talk. So I would ask people, hey, just curious, what does the word power mean to you? So eventually I had like a list of 35 different people who gave me their perception of power. Now, here's the top three. The top three that I remember very clearly is number one, someone said power is the ability to positive, positively impact someone else. So, okay. Second was power is energy. Got it. And then they also said, hopefully you use it in a positive way, not a negative way. I said, okay, got it. Third one was power is to know that you, power is to know the potential that you have, but have not reached it yet. So those were the three definitions that really stuck to me. I'm on the eighth day, final days, 3 a.m. We started walking up because we had to get there at a certain time. And I tell you, David, it all hit me. So these 35 definitions plus these top three sort of kind of made its way of what is power. And I said, the mountains, the river, the eagle soaring, power is authenticity. Authenticity, which means the mountains have no idea that they are powerful. They just show up. They're just a bunch of rock, dust, and dirt, maybe some grass. That's all. The mountains have no idea they're powerful. They are authentic in their own way. They are doing what they do just by showing up. The water. The water has no idea it's cutting through ridges. The water has no idea that it's making its own path even. The water has no idea it's, it's creating sustenance and an and, and essential element for people to live. No idea. It's just showing up in its authentic way. That's all it's doing, same as the eagle soaring. So when we talk about who are we as a bridge, who are we with love as our center, that for me, love is energy. 
Love is the authenticity of who we are as human beings. If we can show up with love in our heart, in our thoughts, in our vision, and we show up not to compete, not out of fear, not out of guilt or shame or jealousy, none of it. We just show up as pure, authentic love, as energy, then we become powerful people. Now, what's powerful people? We don't even know that we're powerful. It just means that somehow, somewhere, someone is making use of who we are. Someone is making use of who we are. And that is a bridge. I am bridging who you are today to who you can be tomorrow without even doing much. I just show up. As leaders, we are meant to show up in our authentic self, which is our own power. And knowingly, unknowingly, we are bridging what is today, what can be tomorrow, in the most stable way, in the most peaceful way. And it is no small thing that you have shown up here with us for this time. So appreciate it, uh, Ronnie. Thank you so much for that wisdom. And uh, as as you're sharing the, uh, I'm a mountain person as well, uh, have not been to 19,000 feet yet, uh, more of the 14,000 foot uh, realm in, in the States. But uh, that, essence of power that you're describing is so beautiful of just authentically being and that everybody has their own version of that yes. in, in the way that we positively impact the world when we can show up there. That is beautiful. All right, listeners, <laughs> there you have it. There's your charge. Authentically show up with your truest energy to love your team, the people around you, your customers, the people you serve, your constituents, whoever it is that you're working with and for, and be the leader you'd want your boss to be. Ronnie Pranik, thank you so much for being a guest with us. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you, David. It's been a joy. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.